We are ready to start the second day uh, of this uh, conference. So once again, welcome. My name is Johanna Manegren-Selmovic and I am Associate Researcher at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and uh, Senior Lecturer at Södertörn University for those of you who were not here yesterday. Um, the panel today I'm really excited about that we're going to open with. Um, we, have, uh, we will continue uh, the theme that where we left off in a way uh, yesterday to some extent when we talked about uh, post-colonial remembering and so on. Uh, and we'll do that in, in, in different uh, ways with the help of our three members of the roundtable. Um, I, first of all, I just want to say that for me personally as a researcher and as part of this research project on, on peace and the politics of memory, the question of art has been like the great inspiration to try and think about this connection. And it's actually not so much through research, but rather through engaging with artists like Doris Salcedo, Mona Hatum, and so on. That, that kind of uh, art that not only talks about memory and peace and what the absences are doing in conflict-affected societies, but also how that absence is also very productive. It's the presence of absence that can do things, that, that can do things to peace. Uh, and with that, I'm very happy to, to introduce also the first uh, speaker today, who is Anders Sunna, who is a Swedish artist uh, who has been uh, working uh, for a long time with a personal connection uh, about the Sama history, his own family history, translating that into art. Um, today, having been represented all over the world, uh, it's represented at the Museum of Modern Art here in Stockholm, represented Sweden at the uh, Venice Art Biennale, Biennale, and so on. And he, we're going to start this conversation today with Anders showing some of the artwork and talking about how he relates to the personal history of his family, but also collective memories um, of uh, Swedish state oppression of uh, Sami. Um, and then our second uh, guest is James Gao, who is a um, professor of um, uh, international security, war and international, <coughs> international, peace. In, international peace and security, yes, uh, at King's College in London. Um, and King's College has been for several years having a large research project on art and reconciliation. So this will be the starting point for, for uh, James' intervention. And also, last but not least, <laughs> Cecilia Wiedenheim, who is the head of Tjensta Konsthall, uh, which is in English, I think it says Tjensta Art Center, maybe, yeah? Um, which is, uh, for many years, have been engaging with these issues to do with cultural heritage, the role of art, uh, and it's based in Tjensta, which is... Um, and you have many words for these these days, but like a poor area, poorer, one of Stockholm's poorest areas outside in, in the outskirts of Stockholm. Uh, and that's also interesting to see how that art can engage uh, also in the sort of local context. So with this long introduction, I want to then give the word to Anders, who will begin then by showing some of his art and explain um, and talk about that. <coughs> Yes, okay, uh, yeah, I will start. Uh, 
Um, yeah, my, my father used to say that, uh, Anders, you have a good voice, but for God's sake, don't use it for singing. <laughs> so uh, that's good, we're not going to sing, but so just talk. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, the art piece from the Venice Biennale. Um, that, but also uh, is a quite big, uh, uh, I would say, uh, important uh, piece in my uh, artist uh, work, like background. Uh, the picture you can see in the background is from uh, symbolizing uh, 1970. Uh, and the art piece in the Biennale was called Illegal Spirits of Sapmi. And it's based on my, uh, my family history. But the art piece is also uh, made by all my family members. So my mother, my father, my uncles and my sons and uh, uh, my brother, so it's uh, a family art piece, you can say. Um, and uh, my family had been having a um, struggling with the Swedish states in 1970, uh, but it's already started in 1940. Um, they wanted to get rid of us from our Sami village and accusing us to be angry communists. Uh, but they didn't succeed to get rid of us then, so... But when the new reindeer herding law came in 71, in this area they wanted the uh, landowners to have more power over the Sami reindeer herding. Uh, because the most common thing that in Sami society and otherwise that is um, only Sami people can own reindeers, but that's not really true. Because in this area, many landowners can have reindeers just for a hobby. Uh, even people who are sitting in the, in the government have been owning reindeers, so it's, yeah. It's, for them it's kind of a tax planning thing. Uh, but the conflict started with that they wanted us to work for free for them, to take care of their reindeers. And then they wanted us to pay them for working for them. And we said, we're, we're not going to do it. It's, uh, and we have meetings with the government, and uh, in this picture they have a, we had a meeting, and they were hiding uh, uh, one people behind the door uh, who worked for the government, like a surprise that now, when he's coming, he will run over you because you, you Sami cannot knowing the law as we can. But they were quite surprised because our family had been studying the law quite good, so they become quite, um, how would say, they felt um, like they have, a, uh, I would say, like quite embarrassed or quite humiliated because Sami is uh, for them a lower class. So they were quite, quite angry about it. Um, so we, we lost our reindeer herding rights in 1973. Um, so we became illegal at that moment. 
Uh, and they were forbidden our reindeer marks. Every family member with our name was forbidden. And in the 80s, um, they were doing this forced location for us. They forced us away during a reindeer herding uh, in the summer, marking the calf's ears. Uh, it was just my dad and his uh, three brothers. Uh, and then the police patrol came with over 30 people. So it was 30 people against four. And they had been getting this assignment from the government to force us away. And we didn't know about this, and so... And we, we refused to uh, let the reindeers go. We tried to keep them, because if we are going to let them go, they will disappear. Because they were forcing away to another place. And during this time, when we had to let them go after a while, because they needed water, the reindeers, um, so we lost about 1,500 reindeers disappeared in two years. And they were also, they were saying they were forcing to another location, but instead they were building this uh, slaughterhouse just for our reindeers, so they slaughter almost everything out. Um, with, with the help from the police, and also the, some of the police were also reindeer owners. Um, uh, and also they build this fence to make sure that some of the reindeers will never come back to the original place. This fence was uh, 30 kilometers long. It cost about 3 million Swedish kroner at that time in 1987 than the Swedish taxpayer had paid. And this fence is still up there. Uh, but it, it was not only that thing, it was also that during the 80s and 90s uh, we had like three to four hundred police notifications on us. So during the day we were in the reindeer forest and during the evenings and nights we were sitting at the police station getting questioned and accused for different crimes and um, uh, one thing they were picking up my dad at home and uh, they were accused of making a forest fire. But it was in the middle of the winter, so it was quite much snow at the moment. So, yeah. But also that many of our uh, stations, like cottage and reindeer herding facilities, was uh, burned down or destroyed, or we're getting a police ticket for them. So, uh, but also that one, we have built uh, a little uh, small cottage with a, a sauna, and we, when we were ready with it, they were given to somebody else. Those people who were forcing us away got it, but we have never used it. Um, and also, me and my brothers have to like learn that it's, uh, we cannot make fire at places that we have been before, because people had put in gun shells in the fireplaces. So when you're making the fire, it gets quite hot, and then the gun shells starting to, um, yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, and also that uh, uh, my grandfather, when he was in the hospital, um, the, even the government came to the, his deathbed with papers that you have to be in court, that we are taking away your rights and yeah um, 
and he was also refused to go to a bigger hospital by the nurse at that place because uh, the nurse's uh, man was um, husband was uh, uh, the chairman of the Sami village now, who has not a, have a Sami heritage, so they refused him to take a helicopter to the hospital. So he's, uh, he was not surviving that. Uh, and 98, we started to have demonstrations and stuff like that, but uh, with no results at all. Um, so in the 90s, some people was also burning down uh, the reindeer food we are giving out. Um, we are not allowed to get uh, to uh, to uh, like um, uh, this reindeer herding places where where we had reindeers, uh, but what other people had collected and like having this gathering. They were trying to stop the roads, so we have to take the car and driving it to the ditch. And then everyone for the car was getting out from the car and holding it back so it not will fall over. And uh, so, but also when you were in the forest alone, uh, some of the uh, people also can um, come from the back and also from the front of these small forest roads. And one, one time they tried to get in our car and yeah, I don't know if they wanted to beat us or kill us, but uh, they tried to get in the car and they were really aggressive. And the, the only choice we had to get rid of them is to pretend that we have the rifle in the car, but we didn't have it. So, but that was the only way could, to get rid of them. Um, yeah, so during, also when we went to school, many of the school teachers also had reindeers is in this Sami village. Um, so you can think that, okay, how will this affect your, like your uh, grand in your, what, betyg? Grade, yeah. <laughs> So it's, you have been really have to be really careful and look through your um, test and so you get the right, right grade uh, because they wanted you to fail also. Um, but the, when they were following us, the police every day, so one time my uncle was stopping at the gas station to uh, fill up his car and the police did the same thing. And he noticed that I'd been following him the whole day. So he said to the police that, isn't it better that we go together? Because we are all sti still going to the same place. It's much cheaper if you go together. <laughs> um, so, and also this uh, police chief, um, it's also a, um, he's, a, he's a father of a very, famous uh, writer in from my neighborhood near Payala. Uh, so, yeah. So it's have quite many connections there. Um, yeah, and we have been to trials like 40 times. So it starts to feel like uh, when you are a kid that, okay, this is almost like my second living room, the courts, because we have been here for so many times. 
Uh, and the beginning of the, the 2000, uh, we started to get help from uh, a former judge. It started with that he, um, he was in this trial and he was judging against us. Um, and then it was uh, doing it this trial again, overrule it. Um, but then the funny part was that he started this trial with getting us an apology. He was saying in the courtroom that I gave this uh, apology to the Suna family because uh, I have getting the wrong information from the government. And then we won the first case, like ever at this time, but of course they will, the state uh, overrule it and then they change the judge also. Uh, and then we lost again, of course. Uh, but uh, he was getting so angry that he stopped working as a judge and starting to work for us for free instead. Because he didn't like the system and how they treated us and how they treating because he was saying this, this system is really racist based that how they are making the, the uh, laws and how we, they are treating. Uh, so he had been working for us for like 20 years now. Uh, but also when we, uh, he became our lawyer and from the government side, side they came to him and said that you should not help this family. You, will st you have to stop helping them. Um, yeah, and the picture behind is also from an event that they were trying to steal our reindeers. And we had some inside information about it, so we stayed at the place in the forest the night before, and lying in the forest and looking at them and seeing what's happening. And when the reindeer herding started and they were to, trying to force them away um, on the other side of the river, then we came from the forest and another uh, group from my family went to the other side of the river to make sure that they cannot force the reindeers to the other side. So we have dogs and to, uh, to make sure that this won't happen. Um, but yeah, it became quite an angry situation and people yeah, wanted to <laughs> fight and but also that they wanted to, to stab us with a knife. So. Uh, but after a while, they calmed down and, and um, um, yeah, and they didn't succeed to take our reindeers that time. Uh, and in the, in the picture, there is um, because they had this chairman first that was a police officer, and after him, the chairman from the Sami village was a ex-military from the Swedish government that holding this uh, video camera to trying to provoke us, um, but yeah, we didn't succeed with that. Um, yeah, the next one. Uh, so there were, this is uh, like 2019, when we are, you can say we are getting stabbed by our own, own people, uh, when the Sami parliament in Sweden was forbidding our reindeer marks for the second time. Um, so, it's also this trouble with the internal colonization, how we are divided and how, uh, yeah, it's quite much how 
money will take the power over the par parliament in, in Sápmi also. Uh, and the Sámi parliament have never talked to us, like never, even, uh, even though our conflict started way before the Sámi parliament existed. Uh, we also have a, a demonstration in 2019. Uh, no, 20, no. 21 we have the demonstration and we're also br burning our votes for the Sami parliament at the moment also. Uh, but when we are seeking this uh, uh, demonstration uh, from the police, uh, it was quite, took quite much time because the police didn't really want to give me this permission. Um, and they were saying that I, I have to redraw this uh, application. That, and I said, but you can just give me a no or a yes. I don't have to take it back. Say yes or no. And the police officer get very angry at me. You have to take it. I said, yes, but you can say yes or no. <laughs> That's, I just need those two things. Uh, but I, I don't care if I get a yes or no. I will still do the, this demonstration, but I just want to and, and the police was really angry and just, now you have to do it and then put the phone on. And it took like an hour and then the police called again and okay, you will get the demonstration permission that, yeah. And then we had just 20 hours to make this happen. So we went to Luxele where this is going to happen and uh, we have been renting a cottage quite near this place and we were like, uh, walking around in the evening and the night to see what okay how will they do this and plan it and and also putting up posters during the night and everything so when they are working waking up these politicians they will see all these posters and feel that uh, because they know about that and they had said no to this and they were thinking that okay this will not this demonstration will not happen but of course it happened so uh, so we delayed the, this uh, ceremony for the opening for like a half hour and we were just five people from our family uh, and they were quite angry that but we said no that that should not be happening because we have been renting all this place and this family should not be here and demonstrating and then trying to force us farther and farther away and then building this uh, like fences and like trying to, um, but we really like to de like uh, delay their ceremony and so on. So, but then we came to a place that we wanted to be in. It was a little, like a small hill, and then we have the sun in our backs, and we had made many many like posters. Like, um, so it looked like we were much more people than we really was. Uh, so, and then we had a li this big uh, megaphone and so, yeah, but we were only five people. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we can take the next one maybe, yeah. Uh, so this is the 2020 picture that I painted and then I burned it down because ashes, or ashes is like the cleanest because it's burned. It's, uh, but it's also symbolized a new beginning but also struggling and it's have many 
elements in this fire. Um, yeah, we can take maybe the next one. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> Try to steal a picture. <laughs> Yo. If you have time, take a picture of the QR code because <laughs> then you can hear the sound piece. Um, and then you can have a quick, uh, like, summar uh, summarizing of this. Uh, but I just have to say some f funny things about the Biennale and the upbuilding because when we came there and started to build it, we have these uh, wood structures. Uh, um, but when they came, they had plastic over it, so it's getting quite dangerous with the mouse string and the fungus things. So it took like two weeks to make it dry. Um, uh, yeah, so it was quite hurry. But also that we needed some stones for the for the burn paintings because we could not just put it down on the marble floor. Uh, so then we take this uh, wheel, wheel row, what's it called? Skotskjerda. Wheelbarrow. Wheelbarrow uh, from, the, uh, from the United States uh, pavilion. <laughs> and then we went to the Russian pavilion because they had lots of stone on the other side there. So we're taking the stones from the Russian side with the American barrel uh, and putting our, it on our art piece. And the back side also of the paintings on the structure, they said that you have to protect it with something like, because people can run in the back side and pointing on the pointy things, that you have to protect it. And then we took the, the fancy from the Danish pavilion. <laughs> uh, so it was quite this, you have something you have to do and you have to solve it in place. And that is quite a common Sami thing that it, you cannot really plan everything. You have to take what you're having at that moment and figure out how to solve the problem. Um, yeah, that's a short version because this will take like two hours in <laughs> otherwise, but yeah. I have no idea how I'm supposed to speak after that presentation. It's quite unfair. Um, uh, but I'm again responsive and I shall try to do my duty somehow. Uh, uh, it's all the worse uh, that I know I'm the fourth choice to be here. 
Your Highness, you're only shaking your head. But I, I shall explain. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to say a little bit about how we got to art and reconciliation, but I'm going to start a little bit at the end. Uh, here you have Milena Michalski hiding behind a very old Roliflex film from the photo depot in the archive at the History Museum of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, Johanna originally invited Milena, who happens to be my wife, uh, uh, who worked on the Art and Reconciliation Project, well, still is working on the Art and Reconciliation Project. This is from the last, the latest of them. We've had six. This is working with the photo depot. Um, uh, will end in January. Uh, uh, and Milena is quite unwell, so couldn't come. Uh, so we turned to Rachel, who, anything, and she couldn't come. And we turned to Tiffany, and she couldn't come. So in the end, it was down to the boring old man, and having had a discussion about feminism at breakfast this morning, I just want to say uh, that I, I've done all I can to promote the women in all of this, uh, uh, in, including writing a project in the first place, but then uh, giving it life with other people. Uh, the, the, uh, and there are two routes to art and reconciliation. One is that uh, somebody I know, used to know quite very well from the UNDP, approached me a few years ago and said, and this echoes what David was saying yesterday, yeah, we spent billions under the umbrella of reconciliation in the Western Balkans, but we don't know what we've got for it. And we've looked around the world with the UNDP evaluation systems and we've got no idea what to do, how to make of it. Do you have any idea? I, of course, said no, not at all. But it would make a good research project. So let's start on that avenue. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, uh, yeah, he said it, but probably more than half of these $7 billion worth of investment were on arts projects. Yeah, how do you make any sense of it? So that was one route. Let me show the film in a second. The, the, the second route was because of an interest in the arts that had begun with an earlier project in 2010, 2011, uh, where we'd been researching visual material in the ICTY in particular, but in courtrooms. Uh, uh, at which point, my already mentioned wife converted to being an artist, or an artist researcher, and began a career. She went off to a uh, fine arts college uh, did an MA for two years and came up doing things. Uh, so we're going to show one minute. You bear with me, just a one minute film, uh, and then I'll use it to explain a little bit more about the Rutart and Reconciliation. It is about narratives. It is about narratives, how they are formed, how they are cemented. They, they, they need, like, like all of us, to try and imagine what was going on. How, how did it look? They don't know all these facts and once they find out, once they, they, they uh, are told all these facts, they will think differently. That is so far from the truth. 
And I think that is where the story starts, for me at least. The film wasn't designed for this purpose, but it reflects that journey. Um, and my mind has gone blank. And a very well-known activist from Bosnia is the first voice you hear speaking. It's about narratives. And it's about the disappointment that if you produce facts, initially you think everybody will know and understand, and they'll convert, and that will be... It, you will get reconciliation or justice or whatever else you want. And you find that that doesn't happen. It needs a narrative, but there are counter-narratives. Counter-narratives are not changed. But it's also about showing people. The second voice is Rodney Dixon, who worked with me in the office of the prosecutor at the Yugoslavia Tribunal, and then later became defense counsel in cases as well. Uh, and it's about the need to show, and how do you show, and the importance of visuality. And here we're dealing with visual arts. And what we have in this little film, you see Milena is hand painting on glass, creating a narrative. And the narrative is in relation to the title of the film, Grid References, which was prompted by the idea of grid references on the map locating the, the mass graves in northeastern Bosnia associated with the so-called Srebrenica massacres. But of course, they were not actually in Srebrenica itself. Uh, and the idea of other locations and fences and concentration camps and the idea of somehow trying to find a way to build that narrative, to give some sense, to provoke questions. But then in the end you see the hand wiping away the narrative. So it's about creating narratives and undoing narratives. And that, to me, is the point of trying to look at using the arts and particularly visual arts it's to present ways creatively to pose questions, to disrupt, to undo. I have to say that our findings uh, are not enormously kind of positive and exciting. Uh, one big finding is do not mention reconciliation. Uh, one of the problems with that term is that nobody likes it. If you talk in the abstract, everybody is in favor of it. If you talk about doing something, won't do it. But in practice, at lower, at limited levels, you can bring people together across communal divides in practical activities. And maybe in discussion, if anybody's interested, we can say more about that and about the other ways in which these things work. And the second, and this comes from the earlier research as well on visual material and on media, is that yeah, we're all different. And it's the same for reading novels, for viewing anything, for listening to anything. Yeah, uh, One person hears one way, another person hears another way. Perhaps because we're predisposed to hear it that way, perhaps because we're open to hearing it in a different way. So there's no one size fits all. So if we're thinking about art in relation to reconciliation, or indeed to resi resilience and resistance and other forms of, of motive political activity, uh, we have to be aware that, you know, like stocks and shares, things can go up as well as down. Uh, and I'll s leave that as setting the agenda. Uh, I don't know where Chichili has gone, but <laughs> we'll, we'll move on and then... Yeah. Yes, and so, uh, 
we are not showing any more films now, so we can all come up we and join. We might show more pictures later, but yeah, but that. Yeah, but please, I think you should all come oh. up so we we get back to the. Okay. Not to be comfortable anymore. Exactly. You need to be on the. Straighten your back. Okay, so thank you so much, and I think this is maybe um oh. I'm sorry. Uh, so I think uh, for you, Cecile, to just say a couple of words to begin. I think this is an interesting connection because I know at this very moment you exhibit a work part of the forensic architecture uh, at uh, Tensta Constal. So maybe you want to say something about that and just briefly the work you do at the art centre. Thank you very much, and thank you for introducing this. Uh, day, uh, Anders uh, James, um, uh, with this topic. I'm Cecilia Widenheim. I'm very happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Um, yes, if you have a moment over uh, or if you want to just browse on the internet um, and uh, encounter the work by Forensic Architecture, so you're so welcome to visit Tensta. It's a 20 minute drive. <laughs> Uh, with the Blue Line uh, subway uh, to Tinsta in um, northwest Stockholm. And forensic architecture, I guess you're all kind of, uh, you know their practice. Someone no, someone yes, okay. So forensic architecture has been working uh, the last 10 years or so, uh, based in uh, Goldsmiths uh, in London. Um, putting together um, a fantastic team of architects and designers and researchers and artists um, trying to figure out how to use architecture, the practice of architecture, um, dealing with human rights <coughs> and involving in, in um, um, <coughs> topics and discourse and conflicts all around the world. And what we're showing right now is a new version of their work, Cloud Studies. And yeah, clouds. We look at them, um, we try to figure out uh, what's in them and how they move around. And this has been, I mean, fascinating artists since way back. Um, they could run fast, they could forecast something uh, in the future coming on. Um, and the cloud studies was actually a, a proposal from Bruno Latour to Forensic Architecture dealing with our common space which is above us, um, a contested space, but also um, toxicated. And uh, the film and the work they show right now is a new version uh, dealing with, with um, eight different gases, tear gas and methane gas and uh, other gases that are our toxic common uh, to deal with. And very often um, emanates or coming originating from uh, a conflict somewhere using tear gas, for example. Um, it's a fascinating practice and uh, the group Forensic Architecture has been, um, that is an interesting fact, they have been, you know, uh, less and less um, and more and more trying to avoid um, collaborating with institutions and big organizations. You can understand why yourself uh, and more and more uh, working with uh, local activists and uh, small civic associations and organizations um, to get hold of material that could uh, be used uh, pr producing new facts in trials 
um, dealing with human rights and uh, environmental crime. Um, check it up. The you could see the film on online. So, um, as a matter of fact, if you go in Tensta, you could see the whole research behind the work. <laughs> but you could also access it online. Anyhow, um, I'm very happy to be here and to talk. Um, and um, I don't know. Uh, I'm happy to, to come back and talk a bit more about how we do exhibitions and research in, in Tensta and why we work with art and why I work with art. <laughs> um, but let's, let's come back to that. Well, I think maybe then we can get back to the question I raised first, and I think that's a, a relevant question for all of you, how art can then be a form of resistance. And I hand back the mic to you, Anders. Yeah. Um, yeah. How it can be resistance? Resistance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But because art is a quite really important tool in resistance because that's a tool that it's like a, this gray zone that you can make because the government had difficult to take you in this critical like work that art but also that art can speak every language in the world that you don't have to say anything, but the art will tell you in your own language anyway. So it's much easier to reach out that way because it directly goes to the heart and then to your brain. Um, and also then, when I was growing up, my father and uncles were saying that you have to find a way to resist uh, that, that they cannot get you. Because if you're making too much violence or other stuff, they have tools to take you, and then you have no longer, um, you can no longer make this resistance because then you are in the in jail. <laughs> so, but also it's a um, a good feeling uh, when you're making the art pieces also that you are getting out quite much anger and frustration and. Uh, also that you're having this feeling that you're getting revenge. Um, yeah, so, short version. Can I ask you, um, do you think that the art world is, is um, productive for, for the political um, aim you have, um, or, or like Venice, for example. I mean, that's a very specific situation with with world press, uh, la la la. Uh, but do you think do you think that something happens with the actual um, struggle you have locally? Um, I don't know the artwork in per se, but it's more the people because if you're getting spreading out to the people and they are telling it to the next one and next one uh, because it's not just then uh, making art for the white cube because then it's such uh, limited. like limited people that's going to that place but i also making street art to make to get the other ones also to um, make it uh, available for everyone 
and also just being here and talking to sp uh, yeah to talk about it and uh, giving information because the newspaper the schools and everything like that they don't give information about what's happening especially from Sami community and so yeah um, I had an interesting um, conversation with Forensic Architecture, uh, the group that I mentioned based at Goldsmiths, and they were saying, okay, how much can it provide uh, to our future research? We're talking money. Um, and they said to me, we're not so interested in showing work in the art world anymore, because the, the spread uh, and, and the communication you can do is so limited. Um, we mostly use the art world for some, you know, platform work or to develop maybe a method or something, but the art world is so limited. Um, so we're not so interested actually in showing uh, in your art space. Okay, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, uh, but but the, the Venice Biennale if, is of course um, um, a huge international platform with a lot of media, etc. Um, can I say something about um, the show we did um, during the spring? Uh, I didn't bring any images, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I would have loved to, uh, <laughs> but that was not in the brief. Um, we did a project um, this spring together with the Van Abbe Museum um, in Eindhoven. And uh, that is one art museum that is based on uh, an art collection um, put together by Mr. Van Abbe. And Mr. Van Abbe was a tobacco industrialist in the early 20th century in uh, Holland, in the Netherlands. And he based his um, empire on um, tobacco coming from um, the Dutch colonies in, in today's Indonesia. It's one of the European art institutions that have actually dealt with the colonial past and uh, set up an acquisition policy collecting artworks that actually is challenging um, the Dutch colonial past. Uh, inviting artists, but also working in, in, in Indonesia of today, uh, but also researching their collection um, from a post-colonial perspective with different researchers, etc. Um, and um, I would say a practice that I, and a strategy that I admire a lot. So we asked uh, to display some parts of their collection, but we also did uh, new commissions of work um, and trying to deal with maybe not so much the past and the politics of memory, but the politics of reimagining um, maybe a different way of looking at heritage. Um, and um, not using art, because you cannot use art, um, but actually uh, inviting artists uh, that are uh, imagining a different way uh, of looking at um, future heritage. And that was really interesting process. So we invited um, artists uh, who work with NFTs, for example. We worked with um, a Congolese um, a group of artists uh, that are based in the former Unilever um, palm oil plantations uh, in Luzanga. Uh, and they have created NFTs, for example, uh, that they sell uh, around the world, uh, dealing with their past, but with a very specific aim. Um, uh, and uh, the aim is to buy back land from Unilever, 
and start um, a way of sustainable cultivating or a sustainable way of using the land in the future. And uh, it's the first time I went, you know, really into the NFT and the art world, contemporary art uh, using non-fundable non, uh, tokens. Um, and the price of the NFT that you could buy online, uh, so a, a, um, a digital piece of work, <laughs> artwork, uh, the price of this artwork equals an hectare of land in Lusanga today. Mm. So. Um, um, that was one example of, of dealing with um, uh, new technology uh, and actually uh, developing a, a new way of dealing with, with your past, with future in scope, uh, with a f an aim of actually um, changing um, um, the, the local uh, situation. The show uh, we did uh, together in Tensta was called Hurting and Healing. Um, let's imagine a different heritage. Yes, James, I'd love to hear your comments on that. Yes. Um, on the resistance question, and I'll also keep in mind the question you had in your little blurb as well, uh, it's the same for resistance or reconciliation or any of these other kinds of things. Uh, and it's that there can be a role, but there is no guarantee. I differ, differ, I hate to say slightly, with Cecilia about not using art. It can be used, but you can have no guarantee about the outcome. Uh, and there are different ways in which it can be used as a form of resistance or as a cue for reconciliation efforts or for anything else. Uh, yeah, in terms of resistance and looking at visual arts, yeah, uh, I, th I think I kind of categorised four ways in which yeah, kind of art can relate to the to any kind of situation. One is the personal for the artist, their own kind of psychological processes coming together. Um, a, a second, uh, at the very probably highest levels, is symbolism, uh, which may have an impact and an effect. The third is, and the most common, is provoking questions because the point of art and creativity is to see things in different ways, whether it's music, whether it's dance, whatever it is, it's to provoke that way of thinking. Uh, and the fourth is as a practical measure for bringing people together in activities and practice. Uh, and if we go to the kind of second of those, the individual, uh, relating to symbolism, that big iconic impact with cultural reference points, people responding to it. Um, I think you have to say that the, the, the moment that Picasso uh, painted and showed Guernica with a very, very deliberate idea to use absolutely as matters could be photographic style, grey, white, black images. He was doing something which was a symbol that was intended to draw attention to a question and to mobilize support for the Republican cause in Spain. And it did that. It went around on tour, massively gaining support and funding to help in that kind of cause. And I think yeah, recognizing that that can be the case we also have to say that there's no guarantee that it would be the case. Yeah? Using art, also another successful use, uh, without either Mark Rothko uh, or 
the dabby man, Pollock, Pollock yeah, knowing, was that a, a guy at the CIA whose mother had been curator of MoMA in New York had the brilliant idea of sponsoring these communist, anti-lefty, but in highly individualist, abstract expressionists to promote abstract expressionist individualism as one of the cultural vehicles to engage in the Cold War. Yeah, so art, art can be used. I think you can't guarantee the outcomes. That's one of the difficulties. You just, you know, it might go one way, it might go the other. Uh, and I would also say music, you know, uh, uh, the Shostakovich Seventh Symphony and the defense of Leningrad yeah, and Prokofiev's War and Peace. I mean, frankly, although it was finished after the war ended, Second World War, yeah, Prokofiev's War and Peace, every time it comes to the end, I'm ready to die for Russia. Yeah? <laughs> it has that powerful effect. Now, I'm sure there's somebody else who hears the end of that and goes, my God, frightening, awful, terrible, who would want anything to do with that? But, yeah, because we all will respond to things in a different way. So I think it's important to get, understand that things can be used. They can be used to provoke interest, to provoke questions. Um, and uh, we see with Andrew's work just here, yeah, you provoke questions. Where whether or not you're intending to do that, I assume you are, but it's part reflecting that first role of the artist, the internal process of coming to terms with yourself and your situation, but also something that has another meaning. Uh, and I want to throw in another question for you. Sorry, you keep getting all the questions, but uh, yeah, yeah Chichili asked about the Biennale, but to me it's kind of quite a curious question. How do you go from being in this kind of extreme human rights abuse situation against a state that seems to be trying to eliminate in your presentation of things, uh, to being the national representative at the Biennale. There's a kind of gap in that to me that needs a little bit of further explanation to, to try and understand other aspects of this. And just your questions, does it hurt or help? The starting question you had, and the answer is both. It can be one, it can be the other. And, uh, and yeah, maybe in a moment, if you want, I can give an example of that. But I'll get uh, Sophie wherever she's gone. She's gone. Yeah. Oh, she's disappeared. I um, won't get it. Oh, you are? Okay, maybe to show something again yeah. to illustrate. Just, uh, you want to show it now? No. no? Okay, later. Okay. So I thought that this can be the opening question for also opening up for questions from the audience, because I think we have a lot of questions here as well. So I just want to give you a chance to ask, and you keep in mind uh, the question from, from James. Hi, thanks very much. Um, I really appreciate the panel. Um, Susanna Buckley Sistel, University of Marburg, um, again. Um, uh, it's really interesting what he said about forensic architecture. They just had an exhibition at Frankfurt, which is where I live, because very close to Frankfurt, about 20k um, away, there was a right-wing attack on um, um, shisha bars killing nine people. So they actually used um, this, or they, they were asked by um, relatives, um, I don't want to say victims, well, they probably call themselves victims associations. Um, if they can look into the case, and the exhibition was in a Frankfurt um, art gallery, but a small art gallery. Um, and that had a very strong political impact because it brought a lot of injustice to light. So in addition to the exhibition, there were podium discussions with people affected 
um, relatives and survivors of this massacre in the city of Hanau. So there was a very, very strong political impact. And I thought it was interesting because I think I, I heard an, an interview with um, A.L. Weizmann where he actually also said that this is what he does is not art. It's justice. Um, I thought it was quite interesting. And then when we talk about um, the impact of art, I think we should also consider, maybe that's more a question, we should consider that we uh, in Sweden and Germany um, and maybe in Europe and other places have a particular understanding of art and it's more like an elitist attitude. It's for educated and inverted people, uh, commas, um, people um, who go to galleries and listen to classical music and so on. But elsewhere, art plays a different role. And I'm part of a, a graduate school um, network with the University of Maiduguri in northern Nigeria and Cape Coast in Ghana. Um, it's called Performing um, Sustainability, um, where that you know young um, scholars from these two places, um, or from all over, um, actually, um, do research on how drumming, chanting, singing, dancing uh, might have an uh, impact on communities, say, in, in refugee settings, to kind of get people together to work on their mental health, um, to work on reconciliation. So there's that as well, um, where art is not so detached from society, not so inclusive as it is, in, at least in my environment, but is something of day, kind of a day-to-day -day practice. Should I ask okay, my question? Go ahead. Or <laughs> I can wait, I can wait. Oh, sorry, we had two questions. We had two questions, oh, we had yes. Two questions. <laughs> sorry, sorry. 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 Yeah, but I can't, James was talking about something on uh, that uh, the Biennale that in Sweden, Norway, and Finland. But uh, we decided to not not have a Nordic pavilion because it is a Sami pavilion. So we covered the the countries, and we only have uh, the flags during the opening because then it was the only moment we could have the Sami flag up. And then after that, we decided that because. The Bernal didn't want us to have just the Sami flag. Uh, so we decided to have no flags at all. So we took totally away all the countries <laughs> because it was one uh, Sami nation, you can say, from uh, Sweden, Norway, and Finland, but also that Sami also are part of Russia. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, and also that you, you have to make your um, plans what, what you are getting. If you're getting like, you can show your art in the Biennale, then you have to like, okay, how can I like find ways that I can go against also the government, but the government is also a part to inviting, but um, yeah, so. Can I comment on that? Um, I, I would say that, that um, 
the, the strategies and the methodology used within contemporary art um, are most, I mean, interesting um, because they, in many ways, challenge um, nation state uh, and challenge uh, our trust in institutions uh, and our way of um, divide and, and, and organize world um, and international um, meetings like this uh, and to cover up the Nordic states who have been dealing with you know representation of contemporary art in Venice with with the SAPMI um, is is amazing uh, and just a small simple thing but it 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 shakes the whole um, fundament of, of the international art world contemporary art world which is is amazing uh, and and to rethink the role of museums institutions um, um, that that is, I think, the the, the very the, the core, um, um, and where contemporary artists um, put something on the table uh, that is beyond, you know, to nominate uh, a world cultural heritage, for example, you have to be a nation state. Do you know that? So UNESCO would only, uh, you know put something into con consideration if you're a nation state. You cannot, as an organization or a civic society or you know, a group of people, nominate something to be a world heritage. You have to be a nation. And not all countries are nations or <laughs> confirmed nations yet, as you know. Uh, uh, yes. At least some of us do know that because it's states qualified by sovereignty that count in the world and being a member is a UN organisation, so being part of the UN system will come. Um, I, I just wanted to say about the role of museums and institutions, because what we just said is very interesting, because one of the biggest outcomes, I would say, of our art and reconciliation projects uh, has been with the History Museum of Bosnia and Herzegovina, also with the Post-Conflict Research Centre, yeah, but we worked with various organisations across the region, but we've concentrated more and more with the History Museum, not only because they have some wonderful women running the organisation who really deserve all the support that can be given, but because Elma Harshimbegovic, the director, when she came to London, well, you came, uh, gave us a completely new sense of things, because she said that this engagement with us and the activity with the arts uh, had turned the History Museum into a living museum. And as a living museum, it was now active in different ways with communities and across Bosnia and Herzegovina and engaging in dialogues. So one role of the art in provoking questions, in asking questions, in creatively seeing things differently is also as a vehicle for posing questions that can then be carried on in other discussions and giving a new role across a country and a region in terms of dialogue, in this case of reconciliation, but it might be of something else. And I, I just go to about forensic architecture, because uh, I forgot to say it in the original bit as well anyway. Um, yeah, one of the examples of their work and provoking questions and attention has been around the Omaska mining complex come absent memorial 
uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it was the site of one of the uh, famous major concentration camps in northern Bosnia and Herzegovina, made public in 1992 through the ITN coverage and Guardian newspaper. Uh, so the images that you know are from Ternopilje and from Omaska. Uh, Omaska was one of the places where people were killed. That camp is a mining complex which is now owned by Lakshmi Mittal, big Indian steel person all around, around the world, uh, uh, who sponsored Shashi Kapoor with an awful lot of money to build the Olympic Park Memorial in Stratford in eastern London. Uh, but uh, the victims, survivors, are not allowed to have any kind of memorial at the Omaska site. They're allowed to visit one day a year. Uh, another of Milliner's works shows the no photography signs where you're not supposed to take photography uh, in this instance. And forensic architecture did a great job of relating the Kapur to Omaska and understanding. And so, you know, did it make a difference? Not yet. But it, it helps to provoke and put matters on the agenda, which is perhaps the most that you can for sure hope to do. Well, I, I, can you hear me? One. Yes. Um, well, I think that comment also really showed how art can be part of these still contestations going on in contested uh, conflict-affected uh, societies. And I think we'll just have a couple more minutes. We were a little bit late starting, so I think we'll continue for another five minutes. And so, please, Anna, I think you're in line for the next question. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, really, uh, this is so interesting, and uh, I really like how you explained uh, on this how I mean, what art can do that that it goes directly to the heart and then to the brain, and then that's how you, I mean, uh, and I, and I think that that is also the only way to create change and reconciliation, or it can of course create other things too that you don't really. Intent, but my I also have a question for Anders, and I don't know really how to uh, phrase it because I mean I I have a like a have had an ongoing frustration over several years. I have, um, I mean I I do research on on conflicts far away, um, in places like South Africa and Afghanistan and so on, and uh, and that. When I do that, it's usually easy. I mean, people open up and tell me their stories. But then I've also tried to apply for funding for doing uh, research on conflicts in Sweden, like, yeah, on uh, Sami-related issues such as mining and so on. But I never receive a grant uh, for that, but also, and uh, which is frustrating. Uh, but I also, I also feel that it's so difficult. I, I know very little uh, about, I mean, because I haven't like lived in areas where, where you hear the everyday discourses around this. But also when I talk to people in, in the northern part of Sweden, it's so, it's so extremely polarized that, I, I mean, people don't want to talk to me, even about anything. <laughs> so I, I just wonder, um, uh, have you ever felt that you have? I mean, because now when when I watch your art, 
I think that you, I mean, it's really powerful and it, it you really got across, at least to me. But have you had that experience also locally? Have you, do, have you felt that you have been able to reach out to people in your like neighborhood and been able to like change people's minds locally? Have you experienced that? Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Megan Lau, and I'm from the Embassy of Canada. I'm so sorry I wasn't able to join you for the whole conference. This has been really interesting. Um, as, a, as a nation state, um, Canada is reflecting, um, after concluding our truth and reconciliation process, on what kinds of steps we should be taking next. Um, and here at the Embassy, one thing we're trying to do is, is think through how we can center Indigenous art in our cultural diplomacy work. So I'm taking in a lot of what you've said, and I'm thinking through that. Um, but I wanted to ask a question, and perhaps mostly to Cecilia and, and Anders, but James, you may have thoughts on this too, um, about the Sami Truth Commission, which is beginning its work here. And if you've had thoughts, either of you, from an institutional perspective or from an, art, an, art, an artist's perspective, on if it's a process you want to engage in, and, and if so, how, uh, given that there is a public education dimension to it. So perhaps picking up on the question uh, that the previous um, person raised, I mean, is, is the Truth Commission perhaps a venue for for bringing some of the discussion here into practice, and is that a, f a context in which you'd feel comfortable engaging? Thank you. I'm sorry, but uh, we also need coffee, right? So, <laughs> so short answers, and then, and then we, of course, have another panel. We can continue the discussion. Uh, yeah, the first question. Uh, both yes and no. The com most common response you're getting is silence and that's good because then you know that they're knowing and they are feeling it's quite annoying that my art is but also from the some uh, politicians also from the government have tried to stop my art to show that in in, uh, in Luleå culture house they were saying that you have to put take my pictures down that you, you should not allow the, uh, Sunna to show his things um, so, and also a politician that was uh, uh, Sven-Erik Österberg, he said in the, in the TV, in the news, that my art is untasteful, and, uh, and, then, and then I go, yay! <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and then the second question of the, what's called, true, true, true communication, yeah. Uh, I have not so much hope for it because it depends who is sitting there. It depends uh, what is comfortable to make a through commission about. That can we talk about this, or is this too close to the the uh, what's happening now? I think they want to take things that happening long time ago because it's easier to like oh it's so long time ago like let's like go on but if they're taking some t some things that's going on then it will get more more i i will get more excited about that but because i don't think they're going to visit my family and talking about what they have been doing for the 50 years um how they can hunt a Sami family in a Swedish modern society for 50 years every like 
so, yeah, we will see what's happening, but I don't have so much trust in them yet. Well, thank you so much to this wonderful conversation. And I'm really sorry that we can't continue, but you can also talk while drinking coffee. Uh, so that's the next thing that we're going to be doing. And then we'll uh, start again at 10.45. And that panel uh, is entitled Memory Activism, Peace Building, Resistance and Digital Commemoration. And we also have some uh, interesting connections to art on that panel as well.